0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أولم يهدل الذين يرثون الأرض من بعد أهلها أن لو نشاء أصبناهم بذنوبهم ونطبع على قلوبهم فهم لا يسمعون تلك القران قص عليك من انبائها ولقد جاءتهم رسلهم بالبينات فما كانوا ليؤمنوا بما كذبوا من قبل كذلك يطبع الله على قلوب الكافرين so we today move on from the uh, from the discussion of yesterday. so we have started discussion of the various different types of tafsirs that have been written, the different types of commentaries, and the first and foremost of the tafsirs were those which were based on Whatever has been transmitted to us from our earliest generations, from the Prophet himself, and from the Sahaba and Tabi'een. so they form the first category. Now, uh, I would say they're probably a minority in terms of uh, tafsir books. Today, we move on to the main category of tafsir books that majority of uh, tafsir books will probably fall into, which is, um, broadly speaking, called tafsir bil rai. Tafsir bil rai. Now, tafsir bil rai, which is a rai, means opinion. Uh, it means uh, personal speculation, personal understanding. So I'll give you an example of this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-A'raf, which is the seventh surah of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse, uh, from around verse uh, 104, it says, Fir'aunu inni And Musa alayhi salam said, O Pharaoh, I am the messenger from the Lord of the Worlds. Now what happened here is after uh, Musa alayhi salam Uh, grows up in the house of Pharaoh and then after that that whole incident takes place and then he uh, That person is killed by him by mistake. So then he escapes from there and he goes to Madhi and he gets married to Sha'ib Salam's uh, Daughter and then after staying with him five seven years, and then he comes back uh, on the way back. He is coming back and he receives uh, he becomes a, a prophet right at that time so now uh, he is then told to go and release the Bani Israel from the Pharaoh. So he comes back to Pharaoh and he approaches him and he says, Pharaoh, I am the messenger of the Lord of the worlds. And then he says, <laughs> he says, It's completely befitting me that I don't say anything about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except the truth, and I have come to you with clear signs, right, from your Lord so now, send with me the Beni Israel, so this is the demand he makes to Pharaoh thereafter that in verse hundred and six it says <speaking in Hebrew> Now this is Pharaoh saying to him that, if you have brought some signs, then produce them if you are truthful. Now there's no discussion here uh, there's nothing else here now. What can we? gain from this what else do we understand from this now pharaoh is we know generally about pharaoh that he was he had enslaved the bani israel and all the rest of that you know he was quite up there in terms of uh, what he had done and now musa a.l. comes and he is saying send the bani israel with me now instead of just reject him outright he seems to entertain him first and he says okay bring me these signs then right bring me these signs now what's interesting here is that did pharaoh have knowledge i would assume from here that pharaoh would have some knowledge of prophets of the past right he wouldn't be completely a deny of all the prophets or whatever or you'd never have heard their stories and that prophets would generally bring about a sign okay prophets would generally bring about a miracle as well because he's asking him to produce it if he's truthful he's saying if he's truthful so and then after that, what Musa السلام, does, as mentioned here, is that he throws down his staff and he becomes that big snake and then he pulls out his hand and it's very, very white and illuminated and shining, right? So now the people are, uh, so there's a lot of things that you can take from here. You can say, it doesn't say anywhere, uh, I don't know, I've not come across any revealed sciences would say that Pharaoh believed in God or whatever the case is, but you can clearly understand that from here. Now, am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say even though it's not written here, that Pharaoh had some understanding about previous prophets and that's why he went along with this verse and said, okay, bring your message. He didn't believe him, obviously, but he said, okay, bring these signs up if you want to see. Now, that's speculation, right? Did he really... Uh, know about prophets of the past or not we would assume he did so that is what you call tafsir to try to build the story understand something from here put it in perspective using more rational faculties just rational faculties and things like that that's what it is now is that allowed or not majority of the tafsirs today i mean have that i mean that there's uh, in in fact a lot of our jurisprudence that is taken from the quran if it's not clearly stated in the quran is going to be based on this it's going to be based on what we call ijtihad a juristic endeavor to try to figure out what this is saying that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says X then does he also mean Y and Z with that as well and there's nothing wrong with that however there has been a group uh, earlier on and I just want to mention that to you just to for you to understand how these things developed who are very strict about this and they said no only that which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam has stated or that we know that it's come from him as an explanation as a commentary that's the only thing that we will accept as a tafsir, otherwise you're not allowed to say anything, you're not allowed to say anything. And uh, they take this from the apparent, uh, the apparent wording of some verses and some hadith which I will mention some of them to you. For example, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَن عَلَى اللَّهِ مَا And that you say unto Allah that which you do not know. That did Allah really mean that or not? And you just say it, right? So you have to be very careful according to this the apparent meaning of this verse. They they use things like that. I don't want to uh, I, don't, I don't want to bore you with so many of the evidences on both sides, but I'll just mention a few. There's a hadith from Jundub Radiallahu Anhu which says, The Prophet said, Man qala fil Qur'ani Now, while the hadith is in itself weak. Um, Lots of scholars have used it and they've entertained the hadith which is that whoever says regarding whoever states anything regarding the Quran with his opinion with his personal opinion that I think it means this right and then even if he was to be right and even if that was to turn out to be correct he still made a mistake because he's gone the wrong way about doing that you do not say anything essentially about the Quran without knowing 100% that that is exactly what the Prophet has told us, or Allah has told us that that's what he means, because it's like you are imputing something on someone else. So, the response to this by the majority, because the majority agree with Tafsir bil Ma'thur, sorry, Tafsir bil Ra'i as such, right, is that this prohibition here is really just about those people who have no idea about anything. They just look at it for the first time and they just make up stuff. There's no uh, the, 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 there's no uh, understanding of what's going on of the c- context in which it's being stated n- no understanding of its history no understanding of the surrounding details it's just somebody comes and says I think it means this just a random conjecture all right? so the, the, the prohibition that's referred to here by uh, speaking about one's opinion is the one which dominates a person without uh, kind of having any backing for it right because generally if you're going to look at something with some backing and uh, form an opinion based on other facts that's fine but if it's not based on any kind of facts and it's just pure whim you know just pure conjecture then that is what it's it's speaking about right which obviously we would say is not is not allowed and unfortunately a lot of the you can say deviancies today um liberal ideas that come about which try to use the quran this is their problem they've not had much background uh, understanding or learning and they just state things based on what they feel it should be so they impose onto the quran and that's that's what this is actually referring to so there's a few things number one a person who knows the truth but still says to others that no i think it means this for an ulterior motive that would be included in here uh, the second is the person who's ignorant, who doesn't really on, and says, no, I think it should be this, and this is what it refers to. And um, number three, this also, uh, it's also blameworthy, and it comes under this prohibition that if somebody, even for a good cause, for an ulterior good motive, misinterprets uh, the Qur'an. For example, somebody said, there's a verse in the Qur'an where, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Musa alayhi salam, اذهب إلى فرعون إنه Go to Pharaoh, for he has been tyrannical. right? He's caused a lot of mischief, he's had a lot of tyranny. Go, go to Pharaoh so that you can give him da'wah and so on. So there's somebody for a good motive, but it's still wrong. It's still wrong. What they've said is that Pharaoh here doesn't refer to Pharaoh-Pharaoh. There's actually a deeper meaning that Pharaoh refers to uh your 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 lowly soul, your ego, because Pharaoh represents evil, Pharaoh represents arrogance, Pharaoh represents greed and 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 so on, so that is actually uh figuratively uh talking about the soul, so what this means here is go and attack your soul, which means go and exert yourself against your soul so that you can correct it because it has been tyrannical and it has uh, led itself to mischief now um uh striving against the soul and trying to correct oneself and trying to temper oneself with praiseworthy attributes and remove the blameworthy one is a good thing but you can't use the quran even for a good motive you know if it's wrong and if it's incorrect so this is what is explained uh, this is what is meant by this narration right and uh, number four another thing that could be included in here is that somebody just knows a bit of arabic and um they they just try to make some ideas up by not even a proper understanding of the Arabic because Arabic is you know it, just because you know a bit of Arabic just because we know English and that's our language that we use so frequently and everything doesn't mean that we can pick up pick up a book of legalese uh you know a lawyer a book by lawyers and stuff, and we understand everything we'll struggle because there's a lot of terminology and a lot of um, th- th- there's a lot of interpretive uh, uh text and in, uh, ideas in there so that's what this is talking about now the majority as i said they completely fine with doing this in a measured educated way because that's what the quran is there for and their evidences are quite a few for example allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the quran do they not ponder the quran do they not reflect over the quran now what is reflection pondering if you're not trying to take out more of uh, engagement and a meaning from there, right? If you had to just read it as it apparently whatever it states and not say anything more of how it might apply to you, right? Then why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be um, censoring these people that like, do they not um, ponder the Quran or are there locks upon their heart? Then Allah says, in another place, كِتَابٌ أَنزَلْنَاهُ إِلَيْكَ مُبَارَكٌ آيَاتِهِ This is a book that we have revealed to you, which is Blessed, so that they can ponder and reflect over the, its verses, and that the people of intellect will then gain a lesson. Now the way you'll gain a lesson is obviously by pondering, reflecting, and then applying to your life uh in a in a very honest and a sincere manner all right so that's what allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying number two if it was impermissible to do this then that means all that the jurists have in uh, in uh, inferred from the quran would be incorrect because that's all inferences from the quran which is obviously based on opinion but qualified opinion and obviously that cannot be true number three Uh, the sahaba said so many different things the sahaba did this themselves and that's why the sahaba had differences between them as to what a certain word or a certain verse in the quran meant now if it was you had to only take what was very clearly transmitted then there would not have been a disagreement but now Ibn Abbas says, I think it means this, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, I think it means this, which clearly explains that that is allowed, again, in a qualified sense. So I think the way to conclude this is that really the two groups, they are not really saying different things. They're both saying the exact same thing, but one is focusing on one side, the other one is focusing on the other side. So this is what they call a semantic difference, not really a substantive substantial difference or a, uh, a difference of substance. Because what the, 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 those who are prohibiting it are saying is, look, we don't want people just to be freely saying whatever they want about the Quran and then just proving their uh, ideology uh, or trying to establish their ideology through the Quran. Right, and and what they're actually calling towards is deviancy, and it actually goes against so many other verses, maybe. Right, but because they think that a certain verse means something, that you should be able to take it as that, like Pharaoh uh, taking Pharaoh to mean it's your nafs and it's your lowly ego as opposed to something else. So they're saying that, and the others saying that look, we also disagree with somebody who's doing that, but at the end of the day, we allow it. So, really, it looks like it's a semantic difference. For example, let me. A quote to you from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, anh, who's one of the ones who did the probably you know huge amount of pondering over the Quran and did a lot of uh, tafsir. But this is what he says. This is quoting from him. He says He says, Soon you will come across people who will invite you to the Book of Allah while they've already actually thrown the book of Allah behind their backs. So while they're telling you here, we're doing tafsir here, but really, they they don't have the substance in the Quran. They're going to misinterpret it, or they're just going to make it for them, however they want it to, whatever they want it to sound. They're going to put words in Allah's mouth, essentially, right? So, it is, hold fast. It is necessary upon you to bind yourself to knowledge make sure you do this based on knowledge and completely beware of innovation or trying to innovate something and beware of exaggerating so don't take the meaning beyond what it's there for don't try to say hey this is what it means and take it beyond or don't try to innovate a new meaning so that's what he said then there is from uh, Umar ibn Khattab anhu, another statement he said innama akhaafu alaykum rajulain uh, for the Muslim community, I've got two fears. I fear two things, right? Number one, a person who interprets the Quran, misinterprets the Quran essentially, who interprets the Quran against what it really, it infer, what it really signifies. And then he talks about the other person who is going to be fighting with his brother for some ownership of something. So this explains to you the boundaries of tafsir bi Ra'i. So, for example, when you are reading the Qur'an and you're engaging with the story of Musa Alayhi salam, and Harun Alayhi salam, and the Pharaoh, you know, there's a lot of benefits that you can take from there directly. If they're just apparently clear, you know the rest of your Sharia. It doesn't seem to go against anything else that you understand of the spirit of the Sharia. Then there's nothing wrong with that. But tomorrow you get maybe you know, a non Muslim or somebody who's had no understanding of Islam, though they may have been Muslim from before and they open up the Quran, they just start saying, Hey, I think it means this. Shaitan can very easily mislead somebody like that. Now having said that, so what are the qualifications you need to do a proper tafsir of the Quran? You know, beyond the the general pondering and reflection which is open to everybody, right? What is it that you need what are the qualities you need to be a you know a qualified mufassir, a qualified uh, commentator so most of the scholars uh, the majority of the scholars if not all of them that have now come through you know with their famous tafsirs, which we some of them we should we discussed today right they would have had the following subjects and you'll actually find discussions on these subjects which are all related to the Quran right in their tafsir. so the first subject that people need to know about is the Arabic language well the linguistics of the arabic language the philology of it right which means wh- what a word is where it comes from um what its root is what its root meaning is and what its various significations are in the various forms that it comes can you give me the name of someone shifa so we've got somebody Mashallah listening whose name is shifa god bless you um shifa comes from an uh, arabic word shafa right which from sheen ya, which refers to cure so Shifa is the cure and shafa. so you, you have to know the root words, how then if I say Mustashfa, right, which comes from the same root, it means the place where you go to seek Shifa, which is essentially a clinic or a hospital, for example, right. So... Um, this, this is how Arabic works. It's really, really interesting. And you need to know the linguistics. And we have many, many dictionaries that have been written about this from as early as the first century. In fact, uh, the Hebrew is very, very similar to Arabic. right? Um, it's a cement, semantic language. It's very, very similar to Arabic in terms of having roots, just like Arabic does. But they only produced their similar dictionaries to Arabic after seeing the Arabs do it. So, you know, they've been going on for thousands, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, thousands of years before um, the Prophet. But after the first century, when our Muslim scholars and philologists started producing dictionaries with all of these meanings properly, like proper lexicons, they started doing their work only afterwards. Okay, number two, the sciences of grammar, etymology, um, and morphology, and all of these things, which essentially means grammar, right? Grammar. And also where a word comes from and how it changes and morphs to something else and its origin and how to use the words, all of that discussion. Number three, البلاغ, right? Ulum al balagha means the rhetoric of the language, the beauty of the language. How to construct uh, words, sentences, something which is going to be elegant, it's going to be eloquent, it's going to be something which is... Um, Effective, effective speech essentially, right? Because you can you can tell a story just like that, and people will get bored reading it, and you get somebody else to uh, write that same, give that same message, but they're a lot more eloquent in the way they do it. They're not so boring. They're not. So, they 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 their delivery, their effectiveness in delivering that message is amazing, and that's exactly what the Quran is, and. That there's a whole science be- beside that, ilmul bayan, ilmul badi, there's a whole science be- behind that. All the terms in it and what to do, where to, for example, you've got a subject and predicate, you know, where uh, in some cases where you put the predicate, predicate in advance um, and where you sometimes shift the words around. All of this discussion comes in al balagha, right? It's an amazing subject. Number four, ilmul qira'at. الْقِر- to know the various different modes of reading we we are going to inshallah in one of the subsequent days we will be discussing exactly what it means by the seven qiraat and the uh, you know the ways of reading of the quran but a scholar of who, who's really doing tafsir needs to know the qiraat that's why when you look at a lot of the classical tafsirs it will discuss the various different qiraat right for example both of these are allowed to be read الذين أنعمت عليهم الذين أنعمت عليهم 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 all of this can be read okay والقمر إذا والليل إذا Saja. so you could uh, the various different ways that's allowed to read according to the different imams that needs to be understood then number five which means اقىدا Theology to a deep level needs to be understood. Otherwise, how are you going to make sense of what Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is saying? You need to know that. Otherwise, people make a lot of mistakes when they don't know their aqidah, and uh, that's why people get into all sorts of mess and trouble. Number six is usul al-fiqh, legal theory of how laws are derived from the Quran and so on. Number seven is to know, have a knowledge of the hadiths because hadiths are the commentary of the Qur'an the Prophet ﷺ is the commentator of the Qur'an so his words and everything that re- is related about him needs to be understood to probably understand the environment and the context in which the Qur'an was revealed so, for example, you need to know the Asbabun Nuzul the Asbabun Nuzul which we discussed the causes of revelation come from hadith mainly You need to know the nasiq and mansooh, which means you you need to understand what came first, what came later, to understand that this verse has now cancelled out this verse, and so on. And there's lots of other discussion there. Then number eight, you need to have the science of the accounts and the stories and history, so that you don't misapply something and misinterpret something. And number nine, the scholars say, I mean, this is not an exhaustive list, and there can be some differences in some of the other lists that you may read from other scholars, Okay. But number nine, at the end of the day, for you to be a really good mufassir, why are some mufassirs just better than others? Why do they mention certain points and amazing um, inferences, amazing extrapolations from the Qur'an? Wow! They make sense, but why didn't you think of them? Why didn't somebody else think? Of them? why no other tafsir has discussed that yet, and somebody has come up with that now, and it really, you know, nobody can have a problem with it. Like, yeah, if somebody comes up with some radical idea that is antithesis to the Quran, then that's a problem. People say, no, that I can't agree with that, right? Like saying that Pharaoh refers to the soul, but if somebody comes up with a new, deeper meaning, which um, sounds right, you know, n- nobody's going to have a problem with it. It doesn't go against any other usul, and it, it sounds intuitive. Why didn't somebody else come up with it? Well, this is what you call ilmul mawhibah, ilmul ladunni. This is direct knowledge from Allah where Allah just inspires certain people. Now that's God-given, you can't acquire that. All the other subjects we talked about, the first eight, you can go and work hard and get them. But this one, this is fadlullah, this is just a grace from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number ten, I think, right, is knowledge of current times. Because if you want to do, uh, do a tafsir that is applicable to modern times, then you'll have to understand modern times as well to understand the context. But that's obviously an additional idea. Now, uh, let us move on now to the greats. right? And I th- and I, as I said, I love to speak about the scholars of the past. And I'm going to just, while there's hundreds of tafsirs written in this genre right i said the bulk of the tafsirs the majority of the tafsirs are based on this subject right are based on in this style meaning it's uh, they're going to include obviously much of the hadith and reveal things that it's not that they deny them or that they reject them or they exclude them they mention all of that but there's a lot of additional and it makes a lot of sense this is um, i'm going to talk about five of them right and these are taken from different periods all the way from you know, the early 5th, 6th century down to the 12th, 13th century, okay? Just five. The, these are, you know, the, the only reason I'm mentioning these five is these are very well known. These are some that I've personally looked into. These are what have been recommended by scholars, okay? First one, which is a bit of a controversial one, but it's really good at what it does, is called the Kashaf of Imam Zamakhshari. I'll explain that soon. Number two uh, is called Anwar tanzil so, the first one, Al Kashaf. Kashaf comes from the concept of Kashf, which means to open up. So, it's the Kashaf, it's the one which really opens up the Quran, right? Which really uncovers the Quran with all of its secrets and so on. That's the idea behind the name, I think. Number two, Anwar al Tanzil, the, the illumination or lights of revelation, and the realities of interpretation. This one is by Imam Baydawi, a beautiful tafsir, a beautiful tafsir. Qadi al-Baydawi. Number 3 is called Madarikut Tanzil wa al Ta'wil by Imam Nasafi. Madarikut Tanzil, Madarik, Madrak refers to the place where you can expect to attain something and comprehend something. So, it's the place for comprehension of the revelation and the realities of interpretation. This is These are fancy names, uh, but meaningful names that the Mufassirin used to give. Number four is a very long name. Irshad al Salim, Salim ila mazaya al-Quran al-Kareem. Guiding the sound mind. Guiding the sound intellect, the sound mind towards the various different great features of the Quran al-Kareem, the Noble Quran. This is by the great uh, Mufti of the Ottoman world, Abu Sirud al-Imadi. Number five which is a beautiful tafsir um, I love to consult it when I can it's called Ruhul Ma'ani Ruhul Ma'ani, the essence of meanings, it's a very profound, alright, the essence of meanings with regards to cont- uh, the, the commentary of the Majestic Qur'an and the seven Mathani which is Suratul Al-Fatiha, uh, this is by Imam Alusi who was a Mufti of Baghdad in his time about, I would say about 200 years ago okay So now let us quickly look at these people and try to understand who they are and what made them so great, and why have scholars, out of all of the hundreds of tafsirs that are out there, why are these uh, celebrated like this? You know, why these are all really, really famous tafsirs, but because they're in Arabic, many of you may have not heard them. If you read books by uh, by scholars, they'll. Quote them saying this is Tafsir al Nasafi, this is Tafsir al Madarik, this is uh, Baydawi said this, Zamakshari said this, you may have heard it like that. But anyway, this is now you get to hear it firsthand as to who these people are. First, let's look at Al Kashaf. And what the full name is Al Kashaf, and Haqqaiqi Tanzil, al Aqawil, fi wujuhi ta'wil. That's the full name, but it's just referred to as Kashaf. What it means is the uncoverer, the revealer, the opener regarding the realities of the revelation and the main opinions regarding this uh, the, so the main opinions with regards to the various different ways of interpretation so he's going to provide that this is abul qasim mahmud ibn umar ibn muhammad al-khwarizmi al-mu'tazili he's from al-khwarizm khwarizm is If you've been to, uh, lots of people are now traveling, right, I mean, I know the lockdown's uh, upon us, but a lot of people started to travel to Uzbekistan. Khwarizm is the northern western section of, uh, of Uzbekistan today, where Khiva is, Khiva, and Urgench, I think that's the place there was uh, there was a there was a, there was a Khawarizmi dynasty there that was finally taken down by the tatars uh, by, by the mongols right Khawarizm shah right so that is the area that he's from and there was a huge amount of scholars that came from there it's just a bit of a distance away from bukhara and samarkand right maybe several hours and you'll be in that area Right Nowadays you can go there by flight. It's all within Uzbekistan. So that's where he's from originally, but he became titled Jarullah. So they call him Jarullah al-Zamakhshari. Why Jarullah? Jarullah, Jar means a neighbor, Allah's neighbor. Why is he called Allah's neighbor? He went and stayed in Makkah Mukarramah for quite a long time. So then he became known as Jarullah and people were impressed by him because he developed something which nobody had done so until then and after that mashallah that science has grown which is this aspect of the effective speech of the quran the balagha and the eloquence of the quran he's the first person to have i mean people may have had ideas before this but he's the first person who really revealed that who really came up with that now what's really interesting here is that this person was deviant in his beliefs like literally heterodox in his belief, he's from the Mu'tazili group. The Mu'tazili group they had these weird beliefs. They denied that you will be able to see Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in the hereafter, um, because Allah is just so one that you can't see Him. Uh, they they gave preference to the rational um, uh, faculty uh, sometimes and. Try to reinterpret the hadith that would go against their ideas They said that anybody who commits a major sin is no longer a Muslim though. He's not a kafir, but he's no longer a Muslim either and They had I mean, I don't want to go into that they believed in the createdness of the Quran and that's why Imam Ahmed Ibn Hanbal had his inquisition and was beaten up quite a bit when he refused to accept that view from the ruler of the time who was uh, affected by this idea so This was obviously later, after all of that time when they when they'd lost a lot of their glory. There was a time when they were really prominent, and uh, after that they were that they they were evicted. They were uh, essentially defeated in that sense. So a lot of them they actually started using their rational. You know, they've a lot of intellectuals in there. They started using it for the sciences of lexicography and balaga and so on. So they really uh, did a lot of work in that regard, you know, once they were not allowed to be deviant. Now, this Jarullah al-Zamakhshari, we have to mention him and his tafsir has to be consulted because he's got those unique features about the Arabic language and especially the language of the Quran, okay? And its effectiveness, that's what's important about it. He was born in 467 Hijri in Zamakhshar. Right, which is one of the villages of that Khwarizm area, and then after that, he went and he eventually passed away in Jurjaniyah again in Khwarizm, and that was in 538 Hijri. Now, subhanallah, you know, if it wasn't for that deviancy, this would be an amazing tafsir. So, you have to ignore when he, for example, when he discusses certain verses, when he discusses certain verses that. He tries to give, for example, in Surah qiyamah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there's Some faces on that day will be very resplendent, gazing at their Lord, which is the belief, it's clear in hadith and everything, that's what the Ahlul sunnah wal-Jama'ah believe in, that you will be able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hereafter. He says, no, that's not what it means, nadirah, which means to see. He says, no, what it means here is مُنْتَذِرَةِ which means you'll be waiting for your Lord. So they deny the sight. So what they do is they will reinterpret certain verses like that. But there's not that many places in the Quran for that. Also, what they will do is <clears throat> uh, for example, there's a verse in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that whoever kills another believer purposely, right? Premeditated murder like that of another believer, then you know, they're going to be in hellfire and so on. Now the Ahl-Sunnah wal Jama'ah our is that they will be in hellfire, but Allah can forgive them and they will eventually go into paradise. The Mu'tazila, they used to say that anybody who commits a major sin is, uh, is going to be in the hellfire forever. They'll never come to paradise. They may be in a special place because they're not Kafirs, they're not disbelievers, but they're not Muslim either. So you'll see a bit of those, but the focus in his tafsir for the majority of scholars is the way he discusses the style and language of the Quran. It's really amazing right it's really amazing of course the subject has been further developed Sheikh Shay- uh, Anwar Shah Kashmiri used to say that there were only two people that really understood this topic one was him right which is uh, Imam Zamakhshari and the other one he says is Imam jurjani both of these are non-Arabs both of these uh, the, Imam Zamakhshari is Turkic background okay um, and they were non arabs but they had developed such a mastery in Arabic language that they surpassed anybody who's originally from an Arab background as well. But anyway, that's a separate point. That's his tafsir. Uh, I will... Uh, so bar these Mu'taziri points, which are a few in there, the rest of the tafsir is quite wonderful in in most sense. I mean, um, in, in in generally, I mean, he's got a lot of other good things in there. So... You you essentially read that tafsir with a grain of salt. Let's move on to tafsir number two, which is Qadi al Baydawi. Now, he is Qadi al Qudat, the chief judge. Nasiruddin Abul Khair, Abdullah ibn Umar, ibn Muhammad ibn Ali, al Baydawi al Shafi'i. Now, the first scholar we talked about, Zawakshari, while he, he was heterodox in his Aqidah, he was actually Hanafi in terms of his practice. So, he is Hanafi in practice in terms of the way you pray and everything like that. But in terms of his belief, he's got the Mu'tazili belief. So number two is Qadi Al-Baydawi who is a Shafi'i. And uh, he is also from, he, now he's from the Persian lands. As opposed to the Turkic lands, he's more from the Persian lands. Okay? Qadi, Abu, uh, Qadi Shuhba says about him that he's Sahibul Musannafad. He's the author of many, many books. And he's the Alim and the scholar of Azerbaijan. So that's kind of the area where he's from and he became then the qadi and the judge of shiraz which is one of the main cities of iran today he died in 691 hijri 691 hijri right Uh, the the uh, zamakhshari he died in 538 so this is a good 150 60 years after him okay Now, this is a tafsir that they actually teach in many madrasas. We studied a bit of this. We actually studied this with uh, Molna Abdurrahim sahab. um, And uh, it's an amazing tafsir. It's very brief. His language is very, very tight. It's very, very uh, succinct. And he's very abbreviated, but he mentions volumes. Amazing. He, He just uses one word to explain something. And, you know, the satisfaction you get of trying to understand the subtleties. So what's really wonderful about this tafsir is that he's taken from some of the great tafsirs before him. So for example, he's taken the best parts of Zamakhshari's tafsir that we just mentioned. So he's take, he t- taken out all the wrong stuff from there. He's taken some of the best parts. And the other great tafsir that he's taken from, which I'm not mentioning here, uh, but it's something that has to should be mentioned, is Mafatihul Ghaib, the keys to the unseen, of Fakhruddin al razi one of the highest logic uh, logic based, rational rational, and philosophical tafsirs that we've had because Imam Razi is one of our greatest theologians and philosophers. And he's got this wonderful tafsir. People just refer to it as a tafsir al kabir, the great tafsir. And um, uh, there's one volume of this has been translated by uh, Dr. Sohaib Saeed. And again, this is. Uh, something which has been commissioned by uh, Prince Ghazi from the Royal Al-Bayt Institute uh, and the Islamic Tech Society Now, while I wouldn't really suggest that you go and buy the Tabari's translation that I mentioned the other day because it's not really a tafsir that you will enjoy, I think, as much unless you like lots of narrations and everything and you've got, you know, academic, uh, for academic pursuits, you want to do that. Now, Razi's tafsir is something anybody can take, especially somebody with a philosophical and theological mind, right? This is a beautiful tafsir, okay? and uh, so in english the first volume is available i'm not sure if uh, another volume is 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 there yet is prepared yet but i think there there are maybe more volumes in preparation okay it's been published by the islamic text society so um what's beautiful about this tafsir as uh, uh, that is Actually, no, we're not talking about that tafsir. We're going back to Qadi Baydawi's tafsir. So he took the best parts of Razi's tafsir and the best part of Zamakshari's tafsirs. Okay, and he he his his tafsir is not too big, but it's you know to understand it. That I don't know if there's any other tafsir that has had so many different glosses and marginalia and commentaries written on it. So Qadi Baydawi's tafsir is so wonderful, but because it's so abbreviated and succinct. Everybody can't fully grasp all the benefits and the secrets from there and everything he's saying. So there are numerous scholars, including Sheikh Zakari al-Ansari and others who've actually written, you can say, commentaries on it to be able to understand it. Now that tells you that this the theory is worth it because when people start writing commentaries on books, it means that that's a very... Important book that they feel that people won't understand fully unless they write a, a, a commentary of that book So it's a commentary of the Quran which others have written a commentary of to explain it to people number three is the Madarikul Tanzil Haqqa'iqul Tawil of Imam Nasafi. This is the great Abul Barakat, the father of blessings Abdullah ibn Ahmad ibn Mahmud al-Nasafi al-Hanafi So this, uh, this particular scholar is one of the very celebrated Hanafi scholars. He's got a number of books in um, Hanafi Fiqh as well, and he's considered an ascetic, one of the reliable Imams of tafs- Tafsir, and he's got numerous other books as well. Right, uh, the the famous Usulul Usulul uh, Fiqh book called the Manar, which Nurul al Anwar is a commentary of, is written by him as well. And uh, what he's done now, he died in seven hundred and one Hijri, right? So he dies in seven Hijri, seven hundred and one Hijri. He now takes the best of what Imam Baydawi had, had, who had already taken from some of the early ones, and this is exactly what happens now. You take the best, there's no point of reinventing the wheel. You take the best and you add on more or you explain it in different ways and you add on more. So he his tafsir is based on Baydawi that we've just read about and the Kashaf of Zamakshari as well and others obviously. Of course he takes out all the, the mess in there or whatever. He discusses the various... His, his book is really good for understanding the grammatical constructions, the qiraat um, and... He also discusses the Balagha aspect and he expounds on it further, in many cases even beyond what Zamakhshari did, though Zamakhshari is the inventor, you can say, or the formulator of that. He doesn't discuss, he doesn't take too many Isra'iliyat or whatever and he's quite critical and everything and it's a really, it's an easy tafsir to read and it's a really, really beneficial tafsir because it provides a lot of additional, you know, uh, uh, understanding. That's why many, many scholars have uh, accepted it and use it, right? When you're reading a lot of the books of the subcontinent and uh, they'll, they'll just write Madarik. So that's what it's referring to. Or they'll say tafsirun Nasafi. That's what he's referring to. Right. Number four is Abu Su'ud's Irshadul Aqli Salim. Now Abu Sa'ud is, mashallah, he's a mountain, right? This is Abu Su'ud, Muhammad ibn Muhammad ibn Mustafa, ibn Mustafa al-Imadi al-Hanafi. He's a Hanafi as well. And he was born in... 893 Hijri right so it's relatively early right relatively early and he's born in a family of knowledge so his father and other people were knowledge and he studied a number of subjects first from his father right and then he also studied a number of the other scholars of his time and he then started teaching and then he became the qadi and the Judge of Bursa the qadi and Judge of Bursa and then after that, he became the Qadi and Judge of Constantinople, which is Istanbul, the capital of the Muslim world at that time. Imagine it. You can imagine his, um, his status, his knowledge, that he becomes the Chief Judge. Then after that, not just the Judge, he became the Mufti. And the, the Mufti of the Ottoman Empire was called the Shaykh al-Islam. So he became, you can say, the Shaykh al-Islam. And he kept that position for 30 years. He wrote fatwas. For 30 years and you when you look at his fatwas you can understand the the jurist juridical insight you know the nuanced understanding that he had and what was really amazing about him is that he would write his responses in according to the style of the question so if a question came in in the form of poet a poem a, po- a poetic form right he would respond in poetry now you might think why would somebody write a question in 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 a poem in a uh, you know in in lines so that they there were some people like that if the if the question came in arabic he would respond in arabic if it came in turkish he would respond in turkish so really a solid scholar who died in 986 hijri now what's so good about his tafsir well firstly his tafsir. Uh, Because he comes later now, after all these other scholars, he's taken the best, and it's quite an extensive tafsir, it's a very extensive tafsir, he's taken the best of the tafsirs of the past. You know, lots of people take from the tafsirs of the past, but a person's choice and selection differs from person to person. Now his choice is amazing, so he'll give you the cream of what's in those, and then he adds a lot himself, right? He adds a lot, he became very, very well known, because I mean, he's the al Islam of the Muslim, you know, capital, Right, So everybody's going to talk about it and he was really a good scholar. Right, His fatwas and everything tells you about that. Now, he, his huge focus is on the balagha and this effective uh, rhetoric and speech of the Quran. Right? And in that case, it says that um, he discusses a lot of that throughout the Quran, and it says that he's done that very, very well. And in terms of some aspects of it, he's the first person. So he's quite unique. He's a pioneer in that regard. And that's why, um, that's why he, uh, he says, you know, the, the, uh, the, some of the observations about his tafsir is that Lam Yasbukhu ahadun ilay. You know, there's some aspects of his tafsir that nobody has been able to write about that before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave it to him uh, to, to write about. Now I can go on explaining all of that, but I won't. Um, it's a very, very subtle, very deep tafsir it's not necessarily an easy read, but you know, when you do get through it, it makes a lot of sense and it has a lot of benefit and really satisfactory. The last tafsir I want to talk to you about today from this genre is the great Ruhul Ma'ani of Abu Fana Shihabuddin, a Sayyid, his name is Mahmoud Effendi, Mahmoud Effendi, Al Alusi. And that's why he's well known as al-Alusi al-Baghdadi, who died then much later in 1270 Hijri, 1270, 1370, 1470. We are—he was about 150, 60 years ago. Okay, he was the sheikh of the ulama of Iraq. I mean, he was the greatest alim of Iraq at the time. It seems okay and mashallah in every subject he just mastered every subject and when you read his tafsir he quotes all sorts and the wonderful thing i like about his tafsir is that he tries to reconcile a lot of you see by this time science had been out right and there's a lot of scientific ideas for example there's a hadith of the prophet sallallahu alaihi which says that each night when the sun sets it goes to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prostrates in front of allah and seeks Uh, Permission to rise again the next day. Now what we see is that the Sun actually while it sets in one area It's actually risen in another area. So it's never really gone It's always somewhere in the world. There's always light somewhere in the world So what does this hadith mean and mashallah? He says I've not found anybody who've explained that to me, you know uh, In a satisfactory way and then he proposes uh, a certain, you know Explanation and it is amazing and we don't have time to go through it today Um, It is something I will cover later on in another talk, insha'Allah. But he answers questions like that. When he talks about the Allahu Samawati wal Ard, he discusses the nature of light, right, from a scientific perspective and from various different perspectives and tries to put it in perspective. It's not an easy read, right, I'll tell you that, even for the ulama, for those who understand Arabic, it's not generally an easy read. But again, if there's one tafsir that I think that, if you, if you want to decide you only really want to read one tafsir, a larger one tafsir, because it's quite large, it's 30 volumes or something, again 25-30 volumes, the copy that I have at least, and it's going to be this one, because what he does is he's got a lot of modern ideas in there, even though he's writing 150 years ago, there's a lot to benefit from, and he's taken the best of the tafsir before, and he would spend hours and hours doing this tafsir, he would spend hours at night writing this tafsir, he spent a lot of time writing this tafsir, and it's, it's amazing. So, um, I would say that uh, may Allah subhanahu wa uh, ta'ala benefit us through uh, these uh, people. You can just tell the intellectual acumen that, you know, uh, for example, this Imam Alusi had when you're reading his tafsir. It's just uh, just absolutely amazing. All right, it's absolutely amazing. So, um, I think that's pretty much just a few more points regarding uh, tafsir bil-ra'i before we move on to the next genre which is really interesting when the one we're going to talk about tomorrow it takes it to a whole new level but this is that um, so we understand from all of this discussion that it's completely allowed to do tafsir in this way as these ulama have shown as well as long as a person has all of these sciences under their belt and all of these scholars you know they've actually written books in all of those many of those sciences right so today a person can't just say hey I know a bit of Arabic and I'm going to start doing tafsir of the Quran this a, a lot of the You can say heresies in tafsir crept in in the 20th century a lot of muslim thinkers started writing tafsir without really having a firm grounding in the sharia and sciences this is where and that's something we're going to hopefully discuss later that the heterodoxy in tafsir the deviancy in tafsir the the problems in tafsir works pretty much mostly in 20th century the older ones we know that they were mu'tazila so we can simply say okay uh, you know ignore those points but th- this is where it is and that's why um what uh, you know the hadith that we read before about being careful about what you should say about the Qur'an, what you should not say about the Qur'an, a person should always err on the side of caution. Because if somebody doesn't have knowledge of something, that means the default status is that he doesn't have knowledge. Because our de- when we are born, right, we don't have knowledge of something. If I want to learn about Maldives, I don't have knowledge, I would have to learn about it. Okay? So th- the default is I don't know the default is not that you do know just because you're a muslim so likewise with the quran as well the default should be i don't know what it means go and try to find out from the right sources so that's a person should be careful about that and we'll mention a few other points tomorrow before moving on to our next section jazakallahu khairan allah bless you all may allah make this ramadan and this uh, series and this study that we're doing beneficial for all of us and allow us to connect to the quran wa akhiru da'wana rabbil alamin assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Jazakallah khair for listening, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and if you're finding this useful, you know, um, uh, as they say, do that like button and subscribe button and forward it on to others. Jazakallah khair, and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.